cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing together as we begin our worship, number 349, O Jesus, we adore thee, number 349. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you've brought us safely through this day to this point where we can enter back into your presence and to know that you receive us here as your children, as your beloved ones, um, not because of anything that we could do for you, but only because of your grace. Lord, you are so kind, you are so patient with us, you are so forgiving so compassionate towards us in our weakness and our brokenness and frailty. Lord, we depend on you completely for everything. We thank you that you have so abundantly answered that need. And we thank you especially for the Lord Jesus, for his death for us. Lord, we can only come to you because of the cross. And Lord, we ask that you would keep the cross always before us. Help us to be people who live our lives constantly under its shadow. May we um, go through this time of worship tonight with the cross vividly before us, but also remembering that we serve a risen Savior who is no longer crucified, who is no longer in the tomb, but reigns victoriously. He's given us his resurrection life through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
meet with us now, we pray, and open our hearts um, to you and to uh, your truth as we see it in the scriptures. And Lord, receive now our prayers as we bring them to you in the words that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let us confess our faith together using the Nicene Creed and the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's stand again now and let's sing Psalm 144a.
Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, are so thankful for this prayer that you've given to us in your word. And Lord, we unite our hearts with David as he prayed, Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Lord, we are um, eager that you would do this now through your spirit, that you would come down and meet with us. Thankful that you've promised to do that in this time of worship. We also ask that you would do it consummately in the end, that the Lord Jesus would come quickly, and that you would make all things new. And Lord, in the meantime, now particularly during this time of, of harvest, we uh, look to you, Lord, and you alone to provide that the granaries of our land would be full, that you would provide all kinds of produce for us and bring forth the um, abundance of uh, livestock and crops. Lord, we depend on these things every much as every bit as much as ancient peoples did, as ancient Israel did. Lord, we can use our sophisticated technologies and techniques to maximize the productivity of the earth. But ultimately, Lord, it's you who causes the thing. It's you who causes the things to grow and the animals to thrive, so that we can have the food that we need to be sustained. Just like everything else, Lord, we depend completely on you. So we look to you and ask that you would provide indeed. Um, Lord, as we turn to you with the requests that are on our heart, first, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our sins, even the sins that we have committed this day. And Lord, we pray for your blessing on the proclamation of the gospel in the work of missions. Um, First of all, Lord, in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, we pray for Pastor Gregory O'Brien and his wife, Ginger. Lord, that you would please uh, bless this church plant and continue to add to their number, Lord. Um, Help them to identify uh, people who would be open to uh, hearing your word and to joining with them. And I've asked you would help them to build relationships with neighbors and uh, friends and um, help them to be creative and energetic in their outreach. And we ask that you would bring great fruit um, from this uh, uh, mission work. And we pray uh, in Uganda that you would please bless and encourage Tina DeYoung and strengthen her, especially as she works with the missionary kids, teaching them. Thank you that she's been able to return to full-time teaching after um, doing other side projects uh, while families were on furlough or otherwise out of the country. Lord, we pray that you would encourage her in her work, help her to be a great blessing to these kids, not only to give them the education that they need, but also to be part of their discipleship and uh, your way of uh, bringing these kids to full maturity in Christ for a lifetime of service in your kingdom. Preserve those uh, the missionary children, Lord, we pray, from the um, many dangers, uh, physical and spiritual, of uh, living on the mission field. Um, and watch over them, Lord, and bring them safely through body and soul, we, we ask. Um, Lord, we ask now for some of the requests that have been brought tonight. Um, First of all, Lord, we pray for Jewel McGinty in the hospital that you would please uh, smooth the way for her transition into the rehab facility in Huntington uh, or nearby Huntington uh, so that she can be close to her daughter again to be able to care for her. Uh, And we ask that you would continue to strengthen her body. Thank you for all the prayers you've answered for her uh, through this long road she's been on with COVID and pneumonia. 
Thank you for answering our prayers in this respect for Nan Dribelbis, um, and we or Nan Yarnell rather. I'm sorry, uh, Skip's aunt, Nan Yarnell, and um, we ask that you would please uh, bless Nan as she continues to recover um, and preserve her health. We ask. Um, Lord, we also pray for Kathy Adams' sister, Martha, who has COVID pretty badly right now, that you would please um, restore her health and strengthen her through this time of weakness and sickness. And uh, bless Kathy and her travels uh, to be with family. Keep her safe, we ask. Thank you, Lord, for answering our prayers for uh, Barry and Susan, helping Susan's parents to move. Thank you for all of the details that fell into place and that they are getting settled in their new home and their old house was able to sell. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless their this time of transition and help Barry and Susan to continue to honor uh, their father and mother in this um, uh, time of change um, in their lives. We pray for Scott Gross that you would continue to strengthen him physically as he's uh, struggling with these problems with ear and back uh, issues. And... Um, Please restore him fully and grant to him rest and help him to grow uh, strong in the Lord this week. We pray for um, Celeste's sister, Melissa. Lord, we're thankful for the recent um, good news of uh, some good effects from her treatments that have helped to reduce her symptoms and to prolong her life and health. And Lord, we ask that you would please continue to be with her through this valley of the shadow of death is the end of life seems um, somewhere in the not so distant future and yet Lord our times are in your hands and so we pray you would help Melissa to trust you we pray that the ongoing immunotherapy treatments would have good effect in her life and that you would please comfort her and her whole extended family um, as they look to you for help in this time of need we pray for Paul Sweeney that you would please uh, work in his life to grow in grace and to uh, whether uh, difficult challenges with faith and um, steady trust in you. And uh, please provide for his needs, we pray. We pray for Carol Be About, that you would please continue to bless and sustain her and Ron through her time of chemotherapy. We ask that her tumor would continue to shrink uh, all the way to the point of disappearing entirely. We pray, heal her, we ask. And... Um, Thank you for the good results of this, these early treatments and for the relief you've already given to her from some of her worst um, pain. We continue to thank you for uh, Josh's house and the furniture you've provided for him. Lord, so many blessings. We give thanks to you for all the answered prayers these things represent. And Lord, we do pray for the provisional session of grace and truth that you would give them wisdom as they uh, seek to make wise plans for the future of this mission work and um, evaluate how to make those plans when they don't have all the information and there are certain variables that they simply cannot control or, or foresee the future. Lord, we ask that you would uh, give them a steady hand and uh, wise insight um, to be able to guide this mission work into the future in a way that would honor you. Um, Lord, these are just a sampling of the many concerns that are on our hearts during this time. We ask that you would please care for all of your people and all of our needs and help us, Lord, to be faithful in interceding for one another day by day um, so that we would indeed be a praying church, uh, praying with faith, trusting that you hear us and that you will 
answer according to your almighty power and promises. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to John 14. John 14, verses 25 to 27. And then we'll turn to Judges 6 for our text. Let's pray once more before we read our Our Father and our God, we ask that you would please um, sharpen our focus and our attention here at the end of what for some of us has been a long day. Um, Lord, give us that eagerness to search the scriptures that we heard about this morning so that we would love nothing more than to hear you speak to us in the Bible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 14, 25 to 27. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Amen. Now let's turn to Judges 6, and we'll read the first 24 verses. The story of Gideon. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. 
And Gideon said to him, Please, my lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Amen. You may be seated. A man once woke up on Sunday morning and promptly hit the snooze button, rolled over and went back to sleep. And his wife shook him, said, honey, we've got to get up and get ready to go to church. And the man said, you, you go ahead this morning, honey, I'm, I'm just going to stay home today. And she said, well, why is that? And he said, well, for one thing, the service is just so early. I'm really tired this morning. And besides, you know, I just don't get along very well with the people uh, at our church, and, and the music is just terrible, and the carpet is ugly. You just go ahead. And his wife leaned over and whispered, I, I understand, honey, but I really think you should go. You're the pastor. <laughs> Much more seriously, I'll never forget the day that we drove away from the hospital bringing Margaret home with us after she was born. It was kind of a surreal feeling uh, because after all of the bustle of labor and delivery and the family coming to visit and all the help and the instructions and care and advice from the doctors and the nurses and the hospital staff and so on, we, here we were, just our little family of three, and we're driving home. There were 50% more people in the car now than at least outside the womb, than when we had driven to the hospital. And I remember when they helped us to buckle her up in her little car seat, and the, they cut the little security band off of her ankle. I remember feeling, wait, is, is that it? You're, you're going to let us take 
take this child home with us. Um, and, of course, after just a split second of reflection, obviously, yes, that's the whole point because you're the parent. You're the parent. Well, tonight, um, we begin the saga, really, of, of Gideon. And what we're going to see as we begin to sketch his character tonight is a man who is slow to register that he is the one that God is providing to be the deliverer that Israel needs, that he is God's instrument for accomplishing uh, what so far he's only maybe, maybe dreamed of somebody else doing. Let me give you our three points for tonight, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Uh, so first, God's sovereign interpretation is going to be the heading for verses 1 through 10. Second, God's sovereign intervention, verses 11 to 16. And then third, God's sovereign promise of peace, verses 17 to 24. So first, God's sovereign interpretation. At the beginning of chapter 6, we enter this next cycle in the downward spiral of Israel's repeated rebellion against God. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, and so like in the previous cycles, God responds with judgment. Uh, this time, his instrument is the Midianites. Uh, this time, we're given a little bit more detail about what the Midianite oppression looked like, this wholesale theft of their crops right at the time of harvest. In chapter 5, Deborah sings about how there was no shield or spear to be seen in Israel to defend themselves against the Canaanites. Well, now it seems that the problem is, is even deeper than that. Now, verse 4, they would leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. You just imagine the poverty and the deprivation, even, even maybe even the starvation of the men and the women and the children of Israel they would have experienced as, as a whole year's worth of labor be gobbled up by these enemies that were just overwhelmingly powerful, and there's nothing they could do. In verse 5, the Midianites are pictured like locusts. If you're with us for Sunday school this morning, remember we talked about the imagery of locusts in the Bible echoing the plagues of Egypt on the one hand, and then also from time to time being used to represent foreign armies, like here, as it happens again in the prophet Joel, but always representing the judgment of God, and this is no exception. They could not be counted, verse 5. This was an overwhelming force that Israel was helpless to oppose, except they had one recourse left to them. And that was, having been brought so very low, as it says, Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, following the pattern that's been set up so far in Judges, you might predict at this point What's going to happen next? This is where you expected to say, and God raised up a judge to deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. But that's actually not what happens, at least at first. The first thing it says is the Lord sent them a prophet. You can imagine Israel thinking, great, just what we need, a preacher. We need a, we need a general. We need a hero. We don't need a prophet. We, need, we need somebody to lead an army. Not, not somebody to, to talk to us. This kind of reminds me, really, of Luke chapter 5, when that paralyzed man is 
lowered through the roof by his friends to uh, bypass the crowds crowding around Jesus so that Jesus will heal him. And they're, they're hoping that Jesus will immediately do that, but that's not what Jesus does. He begins uh, with a message that doesn't make any direct impact on the man's body at all. Remember, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And, of course, Jesus is making a very serious point by doing that, um, making the point this man's most fundamental need was not for the healing of his body, but for the healing of his soul. Here in Judges 6, Israel is crying out to the Lord for help. We're not given any indication that they're doing so with any kind of spiritual understanding. They want the Lord's help, but have they repented? Well, that's not something we can assume. In fact, one writer points this out. There's every indication to the contrary, that they haven't repented because where do we find Gideon? We find him in a town where there are Baal and Asherah, there's Baal and Asherah worship going on. So they're crying out to God without actually repenting from their idolatry. They want the Lord's help, but without the Lord's authority. And this perhaps is why the Lord sends them a prophet before he sends them a rescuer. The prophet's message is not a cheerful one at all. Um, and, and in fact, this prophet doesn't offer them any promise that God is going to deliver them. Of course, the Lord does end up delivering them, but the prophet's message is in a very minor key. What he brings is simply God's sovereign interpretation. God's sovereign interpretation declaring to Israel what the real problem is. If you're sick and you get the wrong diagnosis, then you're going to get the wrong cure and you're not going to get better, right? If God's word is going to show us the way to salvation, what it has to do first is to convict us properly of our sin. It has to describe for us what our problem really is, which often contradicts what we think the problem is or what we say the problem is. And so the Lord, through the prophet, summarizes the covenantal history of the Exodus from Egypt and the conquest of Canaan. And he says, I told you not to worship the Amorite gods, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, um, in my counseling classes in seminary, I think I've told you before about how we would be given um, these, uh, uh, maybe a reinterpretation assignment, is what they like to call it. I think that was a uh, word David Pallison liked, a reinterpretation. And uh, so maybe you get like a case study summarizing a situation where a person was going through a very troubled time in life, and the task would be to describe the facts of that situation using biblical categories of suffering and sin and grace and redemption, uh, to, to look at the same case, but from a, a different angle, from a God's eye point of view, to practice using the language of Scripture to describe the hard things of life, instead of defaulting automatically and only to categories from psychology and biology and sociology that um, leave God entirely out of the picture. If you think about it, um, in this moment when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, there was probably a big difference between the way that they saw their predicament and the way the Lord saw it. Uh, they likely saw themselves primarily as victims, saw themselves as victims. These big, bad Midianites are oppressing us, and we deserve for God to come to our rescue and to fix this problem like we've heard he's done uh, for our people in the past. And never mind that we have lots of other gods that we haven't gotten rid of and that haven't helped us uh, themselves. We 
we're willing to call on the Lord um, and kind of um, include him in our pantheon uh, in hopes that he will help to get us out of this mess. Now, of course, we know, you know the end of Gideon's story, we know that the Lord is going to show mercy. He's going to have compassion and, and he is going to rescue his people from this, this oppression. But the first thing he's going to do is to set the record straight about what is really going on here. He is going to reinterpret for them what's going on. He's going to teach them to look at the facts of their lives using a different set of categories. He's going to teach them here to see themselves not primarily as victims, but as perpetrators. That they are responsible for what has happened because they have broken covenant with God. And that, that, um, that skill, we could call it, of reinterpreting the facts of our lives in biblical categories, using biblical concepts and vocabulary, it's not just a skill for Christian counselors to learn in seminary. It's a skill for the Christian life. It's what spiritual maturity looks like, which is really the point that those teachers I had were trying to get across. Because all of us are really good at framing our world in a very self-centered way, where we're the victim and everybody else has wronged us, and we feel entitled to call God to our defense. Uh, But so often, if we look with honesty in the mirror of the Word of God, What we're going to see there is a sovereign reinterpretation of the facts of our lives where we are not the hero or the victim of the story, either one, after all. And where the brokenness of our lives and relationships is actually, we realize, attributable, at least in part, perhaps in large part, to the fact that that God has spoken and he's shown us the way of peace, the way of flourishing, and we have refused to listen. And yet, isn't it a mercy in this dark time in Israel's life that the Lord is still speaking to them? You, you read this prophet's message, you might think, wow, that's, that's pretty harsh. But, but what we should really be struck by is, wow, how gracious is this? that the Lord would send his people a prophet to tell them the truth when they are enslaved to a lie. He could have just let them keep rotting away under the Midianites and in bondage to their idolatry, but he is so kind, he stoops so low as to send them this messenger to bring them his word in the midst of all of their sin and misery. His word, which, by the way, is indeed paving the way for the rescue that he has in store. That's good news for Israel. And that brings us, number two, to God's sovereign intervention. Verse 8, a prophet comes, but in verse 11, the Lord comes himself, the angel of the Lord, this time to Gideon. What is Gideon doing? He's beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And you can sense in this scenario the, the very palpable fear, this extreme caution as Gideon Uh, knows that if the Midianites uh, discover him, all of his work will be for nothing. His family will not have this uh, vital food that they need um, to survive. We must not miss, then, the wonderful irony 
of the Lord's greeting in verse 12. As the Lord approaches this man who's in hiding, beating out his wheat in the wine press, and he says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon looks nothing like a mighty man of valor. And yet that's what the Lord calls him. Not because that's what Gideon is already like. It's because that's what the Lord is calling and equipping him to be. Uh, And Gideon clearly feels the mismatch here uh, as he responds in verse 13. Please, sir, it's it's not clear that he understands yet that this is um, actually the Lord speaking to him. Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? It's like he's saying, well, from where I'm standing, uh, it looks like the Lord's forsaken us. It doesn't look like the Lord is with us. But I love the way that the Lord replies then. Essentially, he tells him, Gideon, this is me acting. (laughs) This moment right here, you and me, right here, this is the beginning of a new story of more wonderful deeds, new, fresh, wonderful deeds that I am going to do now, in your time, in your generation, through you, in fact, for Israel. What you don't understand is that you are the one through whom those wonderful deeds are going to take place. You are the instrument that I've chosen to rescue my people. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Now, one thing we're going to continue to see about Gideon as we continue in this chapter next time is that he's a very cautious and reluctant leader. He's not very quick to kind of get it and to to throw himself fully into this plan that the Lord's laying out for him. In verse 15, he says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Um, There's a a tendency sometimes to be very hard on Gideon here and talk about, oh, look how little faith Gideon has. Uh, Just as a counterbalance to that, we should remember, as one writer points out, uh, the deep similarities between this call of Gideon and the call of Moses. It's a pretty favorable comparison um, uh, to be have your call be parallel with the call of Moses. Uh, Moses, too, was very reluctant when the Lord called him to be a prophet and to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. He said, how can I do that, Lord? I'm, I'm no good at public speaking. How am I supposed to fulfill this mission that you're giving me? It's very similar here, and of course, as we read this story in light of other parts of Bible history, I think we can see this is so like the Lord, isn't it? To choose a youngest son from the weakest clan in his tribe, and to do that on purpose, purposefully to choose someone you would not expect. Why? So that it will be crystal clear from the beginning that the salvation Israel is going to experience um, is not because of the natural human resources of this hero, who's not really a hero, but will become one supernaturally by the power of God. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. I will be with you and you will strike the Midianites as one man. So why is Gideon going to succeed? It's because the Lord is with him. That's the reason. It's the only reason that this is going to work. 
I want to just pause here and think about something for a second there. I think there are a lot of times in our lives, a lot of areas of our lives, where we perceive problems, difficulties. And, and our, um, our reaction, I think, is often to say, you know, somebody should do something about that. Why has nobody done anything about this problem? I think we're very often very slow to realize, though, when actually we are the very people that God is calling to do something. We think that's a job for somebody else to do. I, I really wish that somebody would come along to share the gospel with this, this desperately lost person that I know, this friend of mine, this relative of mine. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if the church would do... Why isn't the church doing more to reach out to X, Y, or Z demographic in our community? Why, why is nobody doing anything to, to take care of this practical problem for this impoverished, vulnerable, or needy group of people? And the list could go on. Times we think somebody should do something about that, and it doesn't always occur to us that could it be that we are the ones that the Lord is calling to step up and fill that need, and that he's opening our eyes, actually, maybe to see something that other people aren't seeing, and that's part of his gifting and equipping for us to go and make a difference in that area. I just, I just want to encourage all of us not to be the kinds of people who go through life wishing that somebody else would do something about the problems that we see. We want to live as the kinds of people who really believe that the Lord is with us and therefore that he can do through us things far beyond our natural ability. Why? Because it's the Lord. It's God, as Philippians says, it's God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. There's a good book, got out on the book rack, called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. And that really is the Christian life. Uh, it's, it's, it's basically indicating this, this calling to, to, to step up and to act boldly and faithfully to love and serve others and make a difference in their lives. And, and to do that, not claiming with some kind of arrogance, all puffed up that we're somehow the last best hope for mankind, the last best hope for the church. If only everybody would listen to me and let me serve them, I would be able to take care of all. No, we're not saying that we have it all together and can solve everybody's problems. It's simply that willingness to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, being willing for God to willing to be God's instrument to accomplish his purposes by his power as he calls you and as he equips you for service. And so instead of asking, why doesn't somebody else do this? Ask yourself, is God calling me to do this? And then, and then you can trust God for the results because just like he's with Gideon, he's with you. He's promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, Gideon, of all people, Gideon's going to continue to um, reassure us, put it positively, that God does not need perfect people or spiritual superheroes to accomplish his plans. Gideon remains a reluctant and flawed and sinful man 
those flaws actually become more apparent towards the end of his life. Um, but right, right here, we can already see his, his, his reluctance, his weakness, as he, as he asks for the first of, many, of more than once uh, for a sign. Uh, this time, he wants to make sure that it really is the Lord who is speaking to him. And, and again, um, we have to be careful at this point not to be too hard on Gideon at this moment. Remember, once again, the connection with the call of Moses. And the Lord gave Moses many supernatural signs to validate his ministry. Remember the staff becoming a serpent and uh, the hand that could become leprous and then be healed again when he put it in his cloak. And that was to reassure both him and Israel that the Lord's almighty power was going to be at work through Moses. He really was God's messengers, God's messenger. And um, so what we're supposed to see here <clears throat> is primarily um, not how, how bad faithless Gideon is for asking for this uh, sign with this offering that he prepares. The primary thing we're to see here is how gentle and patient and generous God is in stooping, in stooping to reassure Gideon and to build up his faltering faith. The Lord knew the kind of man that he was calling. He knew how uh, reluctant Gideon was going to be. The Lord had no illusions about this, and he knew what it was going to take to teach Gideon and to build up his faith and to prepare him for the work he had to do. Uh, I think it's instructive for us that when Gideon gets the sign that he's asked for, in verse 22, uh, notice that it doesn't have the effect of making him bolder, does it? It terrifies him. Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It was bad enough for Gideon to be afraid of the Midianites, but now he has seen the glory of God been said that what you fear is what you will worship. It is good for Gideon to learn this fear of God. And isn't it instructive to see the fear of God taking the place of his fear of the Midianites? Not that he won't continue to struggle with that fear as he goes along. And yet, um, it's, it's interesting to see him so overwhelmed by the glory of God and, and then to see the Lord respond once again in grace. To come back yet again, to stoop to Gideon yet again and to comfort him and assure him, peace be to you. Do not fear, Gideon. You shall not die. And in response, Gideon names the altar. He builds there the Lord is peace. And really, I think that that as a landing place is really the, the central message for this, we might call it the first movement of the Gideon saga. Um, Israel's conduct so far has brought only war and oppression and impoverishment. And Gideon, left all to himself, simply does not have the resources to overcome Israel's problem. And so where is peace going to come from for Israel, Where is peace going to come from for Gideon's family? Where is peace going to come from for Gideon as an individual? It is going to come only from the Lord. It is the Lord who is our peace, our shalom, which means not just the absence of conflict, the absence of war, but that fullness of life and rest and joy and 
peace. It comes from the Lord. Romans 5. I love when it reminds us of that wonderful gospel promise that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And how do we have that peace with God? It goes on through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's a remarkable comparison and contrast that we shouldn't miss between the Lord Jesus and this first meeting with Gideon at the beginning of his life, of his, of his, of his story. Um, like Gideon, the Lord Jesus came on the scene in weakness, didn't he? Um, the call of Gideon has some similarities, doesn't it, with the Annunciation to Mary. It's just as unexpected, just as out of the blue. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That's what Gabriel said to Mary. Once again, fitting the same pattern we find throughout the scriptures and getting into a sterling example of it, it was out of weakness and obscurity that the Lord was going to demonstrate his strength to save his people. That's the way he was going to send the Savior according to the same pattern by which he sent this Savior with a little less for Israel. But that's also where the contrast comes in. Because, see, the Lord Jesus did not, um, as Gideon did, uh, reluctantly wonder, where is the Lord? Why isn't the Lord? Well, of course he didn't because he was the Lord. And what did the Lord himself do? The Lord himself did what none of his servants under the old covenant were able to do. He came in person as the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he was the one who was needed ultimately to rescue his people from their sin. He didn't hesitate. He gave himself in sacrifice to be that rescuer we needed when we could not rescue ourselves. That's what the Lord Jesus did. He is a rescuer so much better than Gideon. And it is that Jesus who is with us now to equip us as his servants. It's that Lord Jesus who promises us the spiritual resources that we need to serve him, even when we feel inadequate, like Gideon did. Even when we feel like, and maybe we're right, (laughs) Wouldn't somebody else do a better job at this? You may not be wrong. Maybe somebody else, by natural human measurements of gifts and and abilities, intellect, maybe somebody else would be better suited to the job, to serve this person, to share the gospel in this situation, to reach out to this need. The problem is the Lord is calling you. The Lord is calling you, and he has promised to be with you, not with someone else. He's promised to be with you. Saying, look at all that I've already done for you. Look at what I've done time after time down through the history of my people with people who are just as weak as you, people who are just as reluctant, just as sinful and broken and needy as you are. Because, listen, it is when you are weak, that is when he is strongest in your life, where he shows himself the strongest, the mightiest to save. So let's consider that the next time we think, why doesn't someone do something? Consider, why not us? Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the history of Gideon.
We're thankful for the, your power that it shows us. But Lord, we're also or even thankful for Gideon's weakness and for the way that teaches us too. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. Help us to trust in your strength and to serve you faithfully as you've called us to do. Only through Christ, who himself is our peace. We pray this in his name. Amen.